0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. scripture reading this afternoon on this Palm Sunday is taken from Matthew 21, the verses 1 to 17. As they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet: say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read... From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. I preach to you this afternoon as you find it in the Old Testament, in the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 9. Our text is taken from the verses 8 to 10. We will read from the beginning of the chapter to give you a sense of the context in which our text is placed. And there we read uh, as follows an oracle, The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and will rest upon Damascus, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold, she has heaped up silver like dust, and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. And she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Geza will writh in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope, will wither. Geza will lose her king. And Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. And then follows our text. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt the fall of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, it is time for our King to be enthroned on high. For almost three years he has been preaching, teaching and working miracles throughout the lengths and the widths of Palestine But now the time has come for him to inherit the throne in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. However, before that can happen, something else has to happen first, something grim and gruesome, something shocking and shattering, something disturbing and distressing. Our king first has to go down the road of suffering, rejection, trial, torture, humiliation, and death. Before he can receive a crown, he first of all has to experience a cross. You can say, in a sense, the most awful week in the history of the world looms ahead of him. But just just how does this week begin? Why well, it begins, strangely enough, as you could have heard this afternoon on a high note, It begins with rejoicing, the crowds are out, the streets to Jerusalem are lined with people, palm branches are being waved in the air, shouts of Hosanna ring out from the people. It is a festive time, it is a time of celebration, as well as a time of anticipation. The people are welcoming their new king. Why, as far as they are concerned, a whole new era is about to dawn. A new king is coming to Jerusalem. A new king is coming to sit on the old throne of David. He will get rid of the Romans for good. He will bring peace and prosperity to the land. A new golden age is coming. Are they correct? In part, they are. It is true their king is coming, only his kingship will be different. It will not be a kingship that conforms to popular human expectations, but rather it will be a kingship that conforms itself to biblical prophecy. It will be in line with Old Testament prediction. And as for the people, beloved, they seem to have forgotten about this. But God has not. And you can notice, neither does he allow the gospel writer Matthew, as well as the others, to forget about it either. For what does Matthew think when he sees Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey? What comes into his mind on that Palm Sunday so long ago? Well, we know it are the words of the ancient prophet, Zechariah. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. And truly, beloved, those words of the prophet are remarkable words. And they're also words that deserve some further attention from us this afternoon and So I'd like to preach to you on the following theme. Palm Sunday signals the coming of Zion's king. And we shall see that the house of Zion is promised protection. The daughters of Zion are filled with rejoicing. The king of Zion brings peace to his realm. Well, beloved, who in the world is Zechariah? I would hazard the guess that he's a prophet that most of you, most of us, don't know a lot about. And indeed, Zechariah, as you may have noticed, is commonly consigned to that part of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. Not exactly a nice name when you think about it. Imagine being called Minor. And imagine being put in that classification called the Minor Prophets. How's that for building up your prophetic self-esteem? And yet in spite of being put into this class, beloved, there is nothing, we must say, minor about the prophecies of Zechariah. Zechariah's writing may have been few when compared to those of Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah. However, at the same time, we need to realize these prophecies of his are rich They are rich with visions with respect to the future. Think of the eight night visions of Zechariah. And they are also rich when it comes to messianic content. Indeed, perhaps more than any other Old Testament prophet, Zechariah tells us about Christ, about his coming his humanity, he prophesies about his rejection, his betrayal, his crucifixion, priesthood and kingship, his coming again, as well as his future reign. Why there is so much in his writings about the coming Christ. Yes, and there is also much, beloved, much about what God will do before and as and after his son enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And indeed, as we read our text of this afternoon, we need to see at least three things in it. We need to see God saying to us, first of all, what he's going to do in the near future. Then we need to hear in it what God is going to do in the distant future. And finally, we need to hear in it what God will do in the far distant future at the end of all time and the climax of all things. See, beloved, in our text, there are three distinct time periods in view. The first one is what God will do in the near future, in the coming years. And to see that, you you need to turn, for example, as we have done a moment ago, to the opening verses of this particular chapter, the verses 1 to 8. And in those particular verses, God is describing what he is soon going to do to the nations around Israel. Remember, Zechariah is writing in that time after the remnant of Israel has returned from exile in Babylon. And it's a time filled with all kinds of political uncertainty and also with all kinds of international intrigue and collisions between nations. Well, in such a time, God says to the prophet Zechariah that he's going to deal with Hadrach, that's the region north of the Orontes River. He's going to deal with Damascus, Hamas, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, as well as Ashdod. Now, what's God going to do to all those people and all those nations? Zacharias says he's going to humble them. He's going to defeat them. He even mentions Tyre. Tyre was considered in those days an impregnable fortress. But God predicts her downfall. And the result of that, well, shockwaves will be experienced by the nation's The cities all around Tyre and they know they're next and they cannot escape the onslaught. All the lands to the north of Israel are going to experience God's judgment. But what about Israel herself? Much will happen to Israel well, turn to verse eight, the first verse of our text, where it says, "But I, but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now, I am keeping watch." In other words, Zechariah is saying that while the nations roundabout are going to be defeated, Israel will be exempt. She will not be overrun because her God, the God of the nations, is like a watchman on the walls of Zion, keeping watch day and night. Now you can imagine that's a comforting prophecy. And surely it must have given a lot of hope and energy to those returning exiles who were still busy rebuilding their land. In short, here's a prophecy that really encourages and empowers them. They know that God himself is promising to watch over his people. But of course, you might want to say, if you're a bit of a skeptic, yes, these are promises, but what about the reality? Where is the proof that all of this is really true and going to happen? Well, beloved, you can say the proof is in history itself. Interestingly enough, it's to be found in the coming of Alexander... Great. You don't read about him in the Bible. You read about him in the intertestamental period, of course, between the Old and New Testament. For some years after this prophecy was declared, it is Alexander who comes out of Macedonia in order to conquer Asia. Alexander marshals his army and he defeats city after city, country after country. In no time, Greece becomes his, Turkey becomes his domain, northern Syria falls as well, and then he goes on to the north of Israel. And there it is assumed by the nations that now Alexander is going to be stopped in his track because there he's going to be up against Tyre. Newly rebuilt Tyre. Again, a bit of a history lesson. You need to understand that Tyre, famous ancient city, had been conquered often. So finally, a decision was made by the leaders that they were going to abandon the old city of Tyre, and they were going to build an entirely new city about a mile out on an island, or a kilometer out, you can have your pick. And that's where they started to build. And around this island they built a massive wall, 150 feet high and 25 feet thick. And so together this wall and the water kept the city safe. And it did do that. Some years later, the Syrians came and they laid siege to it for five years, but they couldn't conquer it. Next, the Babylonians came some years later and they laid siege to it for 13 years and they couldn't conquer it either. And So Tyre gained a reputation. No one could conquer Tyre. Everyone stubs his toe on the city of Tyre. And they expected the same would happen to Alexander from Macedonia. The nations figure, oh, he'll come strutting like a peacock, but in no time at all, he'll be like a wounded and defeated dog with his tail between his legs going back to Macedonia. But it wasn't so, beloved. Alexander came, and in seven months... He took the city of Tyre. How did he take it? Well, he turned his troops into workmen and he told them that they had to pick up every stone, every piece of wood, every piece of rubble from the old city and they had to throw it into the water. They scraped the old Tyre clean. And they built a causeway to the new city of Tyre. And they took it. And you know when they took it, the ancient prophecy of Ezekiel was fulfilled. Interestingly, in Ezekiel 26 verse 12 and 14 you read, they will break down your walls, O Tyre, and demolish your fine houses, and throw your stones, timbers, and rubble into the sea, and I will make you a bare rock, and you will become a place to spread fish nets, and you will never be rebuilt. And that's exactly what happened. Tyre after Alexander was never Rebuilt. And so Tyre fell. And as you can imagine, the nations round about, they trembled. Who would be next? Would it be Israel? For a while it looked that way. You see, beloved, while... Alexander had been busy besieging Tyre. He sent a letter to the nations, and he also sent a letter to the high priest in Jerusalem, and he asked him to supply help and provisions for his troops. Jadas, the high priest, at that time refused because he had sworn an oath of allegiance to another king. Alexander was not pleased. And in a due time, he came knocking on the door of Jerusalem. But then, beloved, a miracle happened. Everyone expected that Alexander would simply put Jerusalem to the sword and be done with it. But that night, the high priest Janus is said to have received a vision from God in which he was told to decorate the city with wreaths open wide the city gates and go out to meet the invaders. But meet them how? Well, interestingly enough, beloved, history tells us that the people went out of the city dressed in white robes. And the priests went out dressed in white linen, and the high priest went out dressed in all of his high priestly regalia. And that's how they went out to meet Alexander the Great to do battle. And the result? The city was spared. Alexander had earlier had a dream about being met by an army dressed in white robes and he took it as a sign from God and he decided to spare Jerusalem and Israel from the sword. Beloved, many years before, God had prophesied through Zechariah, I will defend my house against marauding forces. For I am keeping watch. And in the days of Alexander the Great, he was still keeping watch. But not only then. For this promise of watching over his people remains even to this very day. I think often we forget that. Frequently we let our fears mount and at times we can get so insecure about our future, the future of our children, the future of our grandchildren. But I remind you, your God hasn't changed and his his promises haven't changed. What are the last recorded words of our Savior in the book of Matthew? They are this. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We belong. We who belong to Zion are always under divine protection. And nothing happens to us outside of the will of our God and his son. But then, beloved, if Zechariah speaks about the future, he also speaks in this prophecy about the distant future. First, he saw divine protection, and next, notice, he sees great rejoicing. And indeed, in the distant future, he sees a king coming to Jerusalem, a king who stirs the hearts of the people. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion, Isaiah or Ze- Zechariah writes in verse 9, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Here, Jerusalem and her inhabitants are personified as a single female or daughter. It's a literary device, a special way of describing her. And what she urged to do, she's urged to rejoice greatly and to shout. In other words, exuberant joy and loud acclaim are fitting. And why? Because she's won the lottery? Because she had just signed a peace treaty? Because she has had a great harvest? No. Jerusalem is to rejoice greatly to shout because her king is coming to her. But then notice, this is no ordinary king who is coming. How does he come? First, Zachariah says he he comes as the king of, of righteousness. Now that's unusual. When has Jerusalem ever had or received a king of righteousness? A king, in other words, who who fully and perfectly obeys the will and the word of the Lord. And secondly, another thing is unusual for this king is also someone who possesses, who owns something special. He has, as it were, salvation in his possession. He possesses the ability to save people. To save them not just from their enemies, but also from their sins. From every blunder and every weakness and every fault. Now there's also something else. This king is gentle or lowly. And how do we know that? Because of just how he comes. He comes, it says, riding on a donkey. Now that beloved is something that kings never do. They ride horses and they ride in chariots, but donkeys. Never. Donkeys are beasts of burden. Donkeys are for slaves and servants. Not for kings. And so what is the upshot of all of this? How would Zechariah's original readers and listeners have have taken his words about this king why they would have laughed? They would have mocked. And they would have told him that he was mistaken, sadly, madly, badly mistaken. No king ever comes like this with these kind of qualities. And in this way, my beloved, in the fullness of time, a king did come like this. Indeed, our king, Jesus Christ, comes exactly like this. Matthew hears Jesus order two of his disciples to go to a nearby village to find a donkey and a colt. And he hears him say, too, that any protest from the owner should be stopped simply by saying to him, the Lord needs them. Imagine that, doing some donkey rustling and then simply to be told, the Lord needs them and it's all right. And so thereafter, Matthew sees Jesus get on the donkey and ride into Jerusalem amid much rejoicing. And when he sees that, then the lights go on. And he's led to remember those ancient words of Zechariah the prophet about the coming of that most unlikely king. One day a king is going to come, but he will come. Not dressed in armor, not carrying a sword. He will not rush into Jerusalem on a horse or in a chariot or leading a a huge number of soldiers. He'll come slowly and humbly on a donkey. And he will not bring the spoils of war along with him. No, he will bring righteousness and salvation. Beloved, when you think of your Savior today, who do you think of? You know, my impression is, as I read books and magazines, is that so many people, Christians, theologians, are busy trying to remake Jesus into their own image or into their own aspirations. They turn Jesus into a source of earthly wealth or they turn him into the key to human success. Or someone who, like Santa Claus, meets all of your material needs and suits your fancy. And they make him out to be easily influenced, quickly impressed, eminently gullible, with little or no sense of holiness. And it all raises the question, who is coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? And the answer of the Scriptures is, beloved, it is the king of Zion. It's the king of righteousness and salvation. It's the king who surrenders and who gives his life as a ransom for many. It's the king who comes as a servant and who is lowly of spirit and gentle of heart. It's the king who is going into the land of deep darkness of terrible suffering, of awful persecution and crucifixion, and of death. Together, you and I, we need to see him as he is. as not as we want or would like him to be. Truly, he comes here in humiliation. And with only one thing in mind. And that is to pay For the sins of his people. And you see, beloved, at bottom, that is what we really need. He knows what we really need. And that's not better looks. Oh, maybe we can use them, but... Or fatter wallets, or perfect health, or better friends, or nicer neighbors... Now, he knows that what we really and truly need is salvation. What we need at bottom is rescue from sin, the world, and the devil. And that is what this king, Archie, has come to bring as he enters Jerusalem. And that means there's every reason to rejoice And a shout. Much more even, you know, than the people realized at that time. If they were happy with their limited knowledge, just imagine how overjoyed you and I should be with our fuller knowledge of the revelation of God. We should be ecstatic at the coming and the gift of such a king of such a Lord, of such a suffering servant. And so, beloved, we learn from Zechariah just how our God deals most wonderfully and surprisingly with the needs of the future and even the distant future. And you know, there's one more aspect to our text and prophecy that we shouldn't forget, and that deals with the far distant future. You find it in verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You know, if you think that the king of Zion is always going to remain meek and mild, soft and gentle, serving and submissive, then you do need really to think again. For look, Zachariah takes up his prophetic work once more and he predicts that the king of Zion will not always remain a servant. Now one day he will show himself to be a victorious, triumphant, transforming king. He's going to break all the implements of war. And we're not just talking about chariots. We're talking about aircraft carriers and nuclear bombs and missiles. Everything that kills and destroys and annihilates, he will banish. And he will bring peace to the nations. He will rule over them. And his rule will be forever and ever. But simply the king of Zion will become the king of glory. And if you read this verse, more than anything else, it's saying what he's going to bring is peace. Peace. And you know, in Scripture, peace represents wholeness, harmony, happiness. Now let it be said that this is something that he brings already to the cross. We're told in Scripture in the New Testament that he brings peace through the blood of his cross. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, today already we have peace with our God. And that becomes clear in the fact that we are no longer considered to be strangers, exiles, aliens, rebels, upstarts. We're now sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. We already possess a heavenly home. And an eternal inheritance that doesn't perish, spoil, spoil, Fade away, and yet it has to be said. It has to be said too that we possess these things today in a world of brokenness, war, immorality, and death. But then along comes Zachariah. That minor prophet who in terms of his message is not so minor at all. And he reminds us that the king on a donkey is coming back one day as the king of kings on the clouds of heaven. And that when he comes, it will be to reign everywhere, over everyone. And to rule forever. And to bring that everlasting and perfect peace. Beloved, what a king we have. What a future we have. What a hope we have. Truly, on the Christian calendar, this week marks the week of our Lord's deepest sufferings and deaths. And yet, through it all, there still shines the glorious news of the future. What a heritage we have. And so, beloved, no matter what the circumstances of your life, you and I have ample reasons for confidence, you know, the daily newspapers may be filled with depressing news about global warming and Iraq and Willie Picton. Our personal lives may know sickness and setback, pain and disappointment, stress and sadness. But you know, amidst it all, we have a future. A future that cannot be shaken. And a destiny that cannot be denied. Yes, and for all of that, we have a king to thank. A king riding on a donkey. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.